0: Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome. Hey, we're in the book of Hosea, and we start a section now. Uh, it's our last Wednesday before the summer. Um, And we'll be picking it up again in September, but we're starting into a section right now known as the minor prophets. We've been going through the major prophets, and the minor prophets kind of get a bit of a a bum rap. You know, anytime you think minor, you go, oh, they're, you know, inferior to the major prophets. They're just kind of slipped in the Word of God, just sort of in the back door. They're at the end of the Old Testament. But. They're not minor in the sense that they lack any importance in their message. They're only called minor simply because the content of the books are smaller in majority than the major prophets are. But you all know by now that great things come in small packages, right? Amen? Amen. Can I get an amen here tonight, please? Thank you. All right. I'm sure you know very well by now, great things come. So they're simply called minor prophets only because of the volume of the the letters and the, the size of the books. But understand that these are every bit prophets as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were. These are men that were being used of God to proclaim the word of God in a very important time. Now Hosea... Oh, I was going to put up a slide here. I don't have the slide with me. Uh, I'll get it next time. Put up a little bit of a slide that kind of correlates with the different prophets and the time period that they were ministering alongside the different kings. Um, I'll get that for a future time. But Hosea was ministering at a time. He had a very lengthy ministry, as we'll see. Even right in the first chapter there, you begin to get a breakdown as, as far as uh, the... Kings That he was ministering alongside, but Hosea is primarily ministering to the northern kingdom of Israel. A lot of the prophets that were at play that we've read through already, they're ministering during a time uh, to the southern kingdom, to this kingdom of Judah. in in preparation in a sense for judgment that's coming at the hands of the Babylonians, more so at the hands of God that's using the Babylonians as that instrument of judgment. But Hosea here is writing in a period of time right now where he's ministering to the northern kingdom and he's, he's preparing them in a sense for judgment also that's coming at the hands now of not the Babylonians but the Assyrians. So Jose is ministering during this time. Um, most likely his ministry was taking place sometime around 755 BC up to 722 BC when the northern kingdom was was taken to captivity by Assyria, 722 BC. Could have been his ministry uh, even went a bit beyond that, but there's no mention of that captivity, just the mention of Assyria uh, coming, that sort of a thing. So here's Jose's ministry began at the end of a time of great material and, and military success going on in Israel, or the northern kingdom, under Jeroboam II, All right, And the people enjoyed economic prosperity, political stability, but it was a time that the nation had really fallen headstrong into apostasy. Though there was great, and, and we see that even sometimes uh, paralleling in our day, though there's great economic stability and, and, and just prosperity, um, Man, there's a lot of apostasy that can easily begin to creep in, even in the midst of the comforts that we enjoy, oftentimes, is when apostasy can indeed creep in. So that's the background here for uh Hosea's ministry, which really dominating the, the message that's going forth here. So prophesying sometime between 755 to 722 BC. Now, Hosea was more than just a prophet called to warn a nation. Of their sin and impending judgment. He was a prophet that was called to live that object lesson, to really, again, live out the word of God here in a way like probably no other has had to. Now, we've seen in Jeremiah oftentimes having to, you know, play out this kind of illustrated sermon. Ezekiel had to do the same, but Hosea kind of had to take it up another notch. That's why Hosea is a very uh, unique guy and and a very interesting read. When you really understand what God was calling him to, it would be it, it would be difficult stuff. Just for God to kind of tap you on the shoulder and say, Hosea, I want you to be my mouthpiece and proclaim the word of God. That would be hard enough in a sense because he's doing so in a in a period of time when most of the people are going to just reject him and want nothing to do with it. But Hosea was called to take it even further because here's what Hosea is called to do. He's called to marry a woman whose name was Gomer. That was pretty tough right there, right? But that's not the end of it, all right? He's called to marry a woman by the name of Gomer who's going to be unfaithful. And he's going to have a wife that's going to play the part of a harlot. And he's going to have Children of harlotry. That's what Hosea is being called to do. But you see, it was all going to be a fitting picture of what God is dealing with with his people Israel. Because God had called Israel to be that wife of God, but they had been unfaithful. They had played the part of the harlot. They had run after different gods and idols. And, And you see, God's heart was broken over that. So God is calling Hosea into this kind of ministry of living this same thing out that God himself was experiencing. And that's pretty huge. You know, Paul writes this in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Man, think about that. We always want to say, Lord, I want to experience the power of your resurrection. Rarely do we pray and the fellowship of sufferings. And understand that we serve a savior that suffered greatly for you and, and, and for me. But there's something profound that takes place in people's lives when they go through suffering together. There's a closeness and an intimacy that's born out of that that oftentimes can't come about through just other natural means. There's something that, that bonds people together, you see, when they go through hardship, tragedies, difficulties like this. So Hosea, understand, was given an opportunity to know God's heart on an even deeper level. Because the unfaithfulness that Hosea would experience is the same that God had already experienced with his people of Israel. Hosea was called to marry a, a woman that would be unfaithful and then to go after her after she'd committed adultery. And so too we see in the book of Hosea, God just continuing to reach out for Israel to come back to him. So the book of Hosea reveals some wonderful truths for us. First of all, the very name Hosea means salvation. All right, Hosea. Same where we get the word Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. See, God desires to see us saved. That's really the the heart of of the book of Hosea, the, the salvation that God has for us, that God desires all people to come to be in relationship with him, to know him and to experience the salvation that he has for them, even though we may mess up. God doesn't give up on us. But here's the thing. He's a holy God who doesn't just tolerate or excuse, and he wants us to be holy and a pure bride unto him. Secondly, the book of Hosea also reveals not just the salvation of God, but the great love of God. G. Campbell Morgan pointed out this. He said that behind the chastening, there's a God of love. The supreme thing in every one of the prophecies is that the God with whom these men were intimate was known by them to be a God of tender love, of infinite compassion, angry because he loves, dealing in wrath upon the basis of his love, and proceeding through judgment to the ultimate purpose of his heart. It's the heartbeat of God that throbs through these passages. It's the very love of God that I desire you all to see as we go through. Though we're going to be looking at judgment and sin that needs to be dealt with. We see in the backdrop of all that, the love of God that continues to pursue Israel. An unfaithful wife to God. So here's how we're going to break down the book of Hosea. First of all, in a general broad way, we see it kind of broken down into two main sections. An unfaithful wife in chapters 1 to 3 personally pictured, again, in that relationship between Hosea and Gomer. And then secondly, we see an unfaithful people, which is publicly proclaimed, chapters 4 to 14. But then if you want to break it down a little bit more even, we're going to see in those first three chapters, Israel's unfaithfulness that's pictured. We'll see in chapters 4 to 7, Israel's sins proclaimed. Chapters 8 to 10 is Israel's judgment pronounced. And chapters 11 to 14 is Israel's restoration promise that's how we're going to kind of break that down so let's jump in and look at chapter one verse one we read there it says the word of the lord that came to hosea the son of Biri in the days of again here's the kings that are mentioned now uzziah jotham ahaz and hezekiah kings of judah and in the days of jeroboam the son of joash who's the king of israel so again hosea is from the northern kingdom of israel he's writing during that time of the divided kingdoms he lists four kings of Judah that were contemporaries of him during his ministry, as well as that one king, Jeroboam, uh, of Israel there. And, and though his ministry is primarily directed towards the north, he lists those four kings of, uh, of Judah primarily because he's again identifying that the rightful heir to the throne came from the family of David there in Judah. And so that's kind of why he's mentioning those to communicate that they were the true kingly line. Let's read on here, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, there's been a little bit of debate among Bible students as to. What this is really picturing and how this really plays out, in other words, some have wondered if Gomer was really a prostitute when God asked Jose to marry her or she later became one after marriage. Various thoughts have kind of arose from this. Some have seen this simply as being um, allegorical, that this wasn't really even something that happened uh, on a on a real level, but which is kind of an allegory to paint the picture of what was going on. That's how a lot of times people will deal with that sort of moral or ethical problem of thinking God had Hosea marry somebody that was you know impure or a harlot. Some believe that she was a harlot when God had asked Hosea to marry her; that she was already in that in that place and in that impurity, and that he simply obey god in doing so still poses that ethical problem for some then of god asking to do something that was very immoral but again some believe that she was you know pure when when they married and then later on into their marriage played that part of a harlot and committed adultery after they were married that would be in keeping with the whole picture god bringing himself a nation of Israel that was set apart for him to begin with, but then later became unfaithful to him. So notice how he was told to take children of harlotry. So those that believe that she was a, a harlot already, because he says, marry a woman of harlotry. Well, they go, well, see, it seemed like she was a woman of harlotry already. But then he says, and children of harlotry. Well, they didn't have children yet. So that was speaking of a future tense, just as it could be that he's speaking in a future tense that she will be a woman of proletary. So I believe this is something that that Gomer had committed into their marriage, and so that's kind of the the position we'll take here. You can debate that if you want, and and it's not conclusive by any means. But So as stated earlier, Hosea would be entering now into, as Philippians 3.10 says this, this fellowship of suffering with God. He would literally feel the pain that God felt over his wavering, unfaithful people. But you see, the message that Jose would be able to preach would have such a different tone to it now as well. Think about that. Because there would be a different conviction to it now. Because Jose would be preaching something now that he knew personally as opposed to that which he had just simply been told. Hey, Hosea, I need you to go and tell these people what a rotten bunch they've been, and and he could have gone and done so, and and yet preached that with a bit of you know, kind of real fire and anger, but now he's preaching from a heart that's been broken over this reality that's taken place here. See, I can tell you about a lot of things, things that I've maybe read or heard. But it's the things that I've, I've tried, that I've done, that I've experienced myself, that I'm able to speak with authority and speak from a different position. From a heart that's kind of gone through, you know, the, the, the toils or the labors or the, the struggles of some of these things. And understand something. So too, the Lord might have you go through difficulties or experiences in your life to enable you to be able to speak with a, a depth and a knowledge that may not have been there before. To be able to come alongside others in support uh, of things that they're working through themselves. To come and, and either provide that comfort or, or understanding or compassion or, or knowledge to say, hey, I've been there. I know what that's like. Sometimes the Lord will have us go through those things just to stretch us and to give us those experiences, even experiences of that fellowship of suffering with him, that we might have those with others as well. Hosea is experiencing that here. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, "'Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel.'" It shall come to pass in the day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So here's now, Hosea's three kids that he's going to have. Hosea's going to have these three children that are going to be named, mentioned, with significance to it. The first child that he has is, is Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows or God scatters. It has implications in the nation of Israel who would soon be scattered in exile at the hands of the Assyrians. And Jezreel also is a geographical place. There's the Valley of Jezreel today that is also known as the, the 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 Valley of Armageddon. All right. But it's in this place where there's been a lot of bloodshed that's taken place here. Bloodshed at the hands of King Jehu of Israel, who had massacred many enemies of Israel, including King Ahab and Queen Jezebel of Israel. Uh, He had slaughtered other people. And and, and Jehu went a little bit too far in some of these things. Some of them were were good and, and needed. Some of them were a little bit extreme and went a little bit too far. So Jeroboam too is also from that line of Jehu, as Jeroboam was mentioned in the first chapter. He's from the line of Jehu. So this was perhaps even a heads up to him, that his reign and that whole dynasty of Jehu was going to be coming to an end soon. That they would be taken away, scattered out here. So Jezreel, God shows her, God scatters. Look at verse 6. And Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah." will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. So Loru Lo Hama comes along now and her name means, as it says there, no mercy. God says, I'm no longer going to have mercy. You see, up until this point, God has been dealing with Israel in a very merciful way because they've been storing up, you know, sin after sin and guilt after guilt and, and God has been holding back his judgment. But now he says, listen, no longer am I going to hold back that judgment. I'm going, to, I'm going to release my mercy because now it's time for them to face the consequences of their actions and of their disobedience and rebellion against me. So God says, name the second child, Lo-Ruhamah, as a message that there's no longer going to be any mercy. Verse 8 says this, Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. So Lo-Ami means not my people. See, God had every intent, every desire, right from the moment that he called Israel as a special nation, to be their God. That's all God wanted. I, I want to be your God, and you to be my people. But you see, it was because of their own rebellion that caused them to be rejected. It's not so much that God pushed them away as as it was that they pushed God away. He could enforce his power and rule, no doubt. He could have said, listen, I'm going to just make you be my people and be your God. But God's not going to enforce his rule against man's free will. He's going to give them that choice to decide and to choose. But the more that they chose to go their own way, God just kind of confronted and said, okay, you're not my people. If you don't want me to be your God, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step away here. That's what God did. And it's very possible that in this name is something even deeper, that this son, perhaps, as Gomer went away into adultery, that perhaps this wasn't even his child. Maybe she had this child through a, a promiscuous relationship. We're not sure if that's the case, but it could be in the sense that, not my people, not my child. We're not sure, but that's a possibility. Again, just seeing that ongoing pain that Hosea was faced with. But again, it's to bring us to the awareness that God, too, experiences the pain as we go flirting with and partnering with the things of this world. Now, you may say, oh, you know what? No, listen, I only do that a little bit. I'm definitely more committed to God than I am the things of this world. But how many would... How many of you would be comforted by your spouse saying something like that? Oh, listen, I'm, no, no, uh, yeah, I, I might just dabble a little bit with this, you know, personal relationship over here, but I, I'm, I'm more committed to you than I am to them. We'd be going, no, wait, wait a second. I, I, I think I kind of deserve maybe a bit of wholehearted devotion here, right? I mean, I don't want you dabbling anywhere else, and that's kind of, we gotta say, listen, if you're not going to walk with me in obedience and then this is not going to be. God asked for holiness and purity from us in these things. And so he hasn't been experiencing that with, with the people of Israel. Now, with all that talk of judgment and, and Israel not being his people, you might be asking, is, is God done with Israel now? Is God had it with Israel? Well, no way, Jose. Eh, uh, Hosea, I should say. Okay, look at what we read here, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. See, here's the Lord's heart just shining through right now. Because again, as we said earlier, you're going to see through the book of, of Hosea, even though there's much judgment coming down the pipe, God continues to reveal his love. He says, oh, hold on a second here. I'm not done with Israel. Israel for a time might be not my people and without mercy and scattered, but God's not done with them yet. There shall come a day when they will increase again numerically and they will prosper. It's in keeping with God, with what God has, has promised to Abraham all along. Genesis twenty two seventeen: blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Listen, that was that was a unconditional promise and covenant that God made with Abraham. That wasn't dependent on man. God says, "I'm going to do this," and God will be sure to see this through. But don't you love that? There shall be said to them, "You are sons of the living God." That's That's exactly what John wrote in John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Praise the Lord for that. Sons of the living God. Well, finishing up this chapter here, verse 11. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, they shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. See, the nation had been divided for about 170 years. But then there's going to come the time where they'll be reconciled. They'll be brought under one head. Ultimately, speaking of Jesus, the true king, their Messiah, Jezreel will have a complete reversal and restoration where at first with that child's name, Jezreel, it meant that they would be scattered. Well, now God says, I'm going to scatter you back in your land and you're going to be fruitful. You're going to be planted what once had a negative term now has a positive co- uh, connotation as God will just come and, like that farmer, just bring his, his people back and plant them where they will grow and become a great harvest. They will become numerous as the sand on the, on the seashore. Great, it says, great will be the day of Jezreel. That's awesome. God working it out. And look at chapter 2, verse 1, Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Do you see that here? Those that were once called not my people and without mercy are now called, listen, you're going to be my people again. Mercy is going to be shown to you once more. God is not done. He hasn't given up on the people of Israel, on the nation of Israel. God is going to see to it that his promises are going to come through and unfold. As God's everlasting love and care. He had every right to divorce them outright. Right? Every time that, even the Bible says that when you have a spouse that's committed a, a, adultery in that way, then that's permissible for divorce. But, but understand that that's never the goal. That's never the, the go-to because God always desires reconciliation and that's what he's showing here with his people Israel. I desire reconciliation. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna divorce them and start over. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring them back. That's always what we need to pray in situations, perhaps in in marriages where where you know infidelity has taken place. We don't just go, oh well, okay. I guess there's my my get out of jail free card, my license to divorce. No, we need to pray, seek the Lord for reconciliation. And how I've seen that happen by a, a, a faithful spouse that says, I'm not gonna give up. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep praying for that one. Even when they might continue on in their ways. And to see them come back eventually being won over by the, by the faithfulness of that spouse. When they come to the end of their sin and they realize, man, there's no joy in that. And we'll see that even in the book of Hosea uh, of here where they continue on in their sin and they just recognize there's, there's no good that comes of it. There's no joy to be had in living that life uh, of sin So here's Israel getting just secondary, third, fourth, hundred chances. Just And and you might go, well, that's not fair. But I look at my own life and I go, oh my goodness, I'm so glad for second and third and thousand chances. Because I need every one of them. God doesn't give up on me. God continues to shower grace and mercy upon me, upon you, and I'm thankful for that. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. It says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her path. She will chase her lovers but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them but not find them. And then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for then it was better for me than now for she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal. So we get back now to kind of look at the sin that's unfolding, the situation at hand here with Gomer and, and Hosea. God says he's going to put a hedge around around Gomer, ultimately speaking of Israel who's been unfaithful. A hedge that would be painful, but it'd be protective. And in so doing, he would be displaying his grace along the way. You see, the path of sin is filled with great pain as we've just kind of been talking about. But we sometimes ignore and we overlook things that we think are satisfying to ourselves. But when those things come that may be irritable and start to poke us a little bit, it gets our attention. And the Lord's methods, though at times uncomfortable, are better than the alternative, right? God is actually looking to prevent us from further harm. He's going to hedge us in that might, you know, hedge up your way with thorns. It's not going to be comfortable, but God's doing so to kind of poke you back, you know. Bring you back to the right path, to the path that's going to be more enjoyable. This hedge of protection is a wonderful picture God's grace for us. The end result is that Gomer, who's picturing Israel here, is going to return. There will come a time when the pleasures of sin are going to run out. When that person is going to realize, what have I done? This has gotten me nowhere. In fact, where I was was so much better than where I thought this path of sin is gonna, was going to take me. Remember that video we saw from Jose Hernandez when we watched that movie, The Neighborhood, and he was mentioning in there, and it's, a, it's a, a well-known quote, but I don't know if I'll get it right, but sin will always take you further than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and there's another thing that I forget. Anybody remember it? No? All right. Good. Those two are good enough right there. All right, there's a third part to that too. But cost you more, take you further, and what? Keep you longer. Thank you, Debbie. Keep you longer than you intend to stay. There you go. That's good. That's exactly it. We think we can, we think we can manage sin sometimes. We think, oh, I, I can control this. I can. But man, it, it ends up just continuing to reap that path of destruction that gets hard to get off. And, and, and Gomer's looking back saying, man, I, I'm going to return to my first husband. It was better for me than it is now. It's exactly the way it is. I said, the prodigal son, he ran off to live his, his life, to do his thing. And he ends up sitting in a, in a, in a pen, pig pen, eating the, the food of the animals thinking, what have I done? I had it so much better back home. And praise the Lord, God is there with us, like that prodigal father, with arms ready to receive us open wide. Let's make sure we never have to go through, you know, the wild living, the the pig pen dwelling to realize how good we have it with the Lord. Why would we ever leave in the first place? Well, chapter 2, verse 14, therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there and the valley of Acor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The Lord now desires to lead her now into the deep, into the desert where he can judge this sin. Notice how he doesn't eat. He doesn't do it harshly, but he speaks tenderly to her. I will speak comfort to her, he says in verse 14. He says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So the Lord now says, I'm going I'm to betroth you. That word betroth literally means to, to woo a virgin. It's like that engagement period here. And an engagement in this day took place when the groom paid the price of the dowry for the engagement. How would the Lord secure that engagement? Well, he says... It's in righteousness and judgment, verse 19. In love and compassion and faithfulness. That's what he would give as a payment. See, God had compassion on us enough to overwhelm us with his incredible love. It's amazing that that in itself doesn't just woo people to him, to just draw people to him to go, look at how incredible God's love is. That's far-reaching, that's unending. That love of God is like no other. In chapter 3 now, we have a very short chapter, but really kind of a summary now just of the whole book, especially what we've been looking at so far, and it's kind of a, a view of Israel's past, present, and future. We have the rebellion of Gomer, Israel, a picture of Israel. We have the redemption then of Gomer, the restoration of Gomer, and now the return of Israel. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So God says, go and love that. So in other words, they've been estranged now. Gomer has left the home. She's been with other lovers. Hosea has just kind of been sitting back going, well, she's left me. And what does God say now? Go and love that woman again who's actually been with other people, who's loved by another lover, and is committing adultery, go and love her again. And he goes, that's just like what I've had to do for the children of Israel who's gone after, you know, idols and pagan gods and pagan practices, he's raising cakes of the, of the pagans. Now, that would be enough right there. I think for most people just to, Pack it in, right? And say, God, I don't think I can do that. I think I'm done with this whole prophet role here because this is just way too hard. Way too difficult, way too painful. I can't do that. They'll pull out, you know, Matthew 19, verse 7 and 8. I'm allowed to divorce when, when someone's committed adultery. That's, a, that's a, an option. But again, God's heart is always reconciliation and, and bringing people back. Together. Someone might feel and say, I don't really feel like it or like that person any longer. But we see something interesting here. God tells Hosea to go and love her. Almost like a command. He's not saying, hey, Hosea, go back to her and see if there's some feelings that might get rekindled. Or a little fire begin to burn once again. Maybe when you see her, you'll just be drawn to attraction. God doesn't say that. God basically gives a command, go and love her. Do you understand that's what we're called to do in our relationships? To love one another? That, in other words, it's a commitment we make. This is not something that's based on a feeling or an emotion. Love is something we choose to do. I hear so many times from people in relationships and in marriages... I'll be like, well, I think we've just kind of grown apart. I think we've just fallen out of love. You hear that from people. I mean, you've all heard that. It's crazy talk. It really is. Falling out of love. Because love was never, or should be, Never based on your emotion. And, and the sad thing is when people enter into that relationship to begin with, yeah, emotions are running high. You're like kind of on the cloud. You're like, somebody is actually into me. This is wonderful. I got to take this and run with it. They like me. They even said they love me. And oh, you're just like fluttering now with, with just emotions. You're like this is so glorious, so wonderful. And then you get married and then you start living together. You start dealing with life together. And you start going, What did I get myself into, you know? You start seeing a whole different side to this person. You start going, and and if your commitment was kind of based on this high emotion of just feelings, well, you're bound to fall. Because it's never should be based on that. We make a decision to say, I'm going to covenant to love and devote myself to this person now. For the rest of my life, that's what you do in a marriage covenant. When you get married, you're choosing, you're, you're covenanting, you're, you're vowing to say, I'm going to be devoted to this person. And there might be times where those feelings are strong, and there's times when those feelings aren't strong. But that's why you need to know in your, in your heart and in your mind already to say, it's not based on that, it's based on my decision, to love that person. And here's the great thing, when you choose to love somebody and you're you, you are committed and saying I am not going anywhere I am choosing this person the more that you remain in a committed loving relationship with them the more that you do grow in just attraction and and just that that feeling of just man I really love this person this is a joy to be with this person it flows out of that commitment to them so god is calling hosea here go and love that woman. Go and do that. Choose to do that. So in verse 2, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one of one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Hosea now, check this out. He has to actually go and and pay to have her brought back because she's kind of been sold now into this whether she has a a man now that's kind of been trafficking her or whatever it is he she's been brought into bondage now slavery because of the sin and and Hosea has to go and purchase her back but what it says is that he pays 15 shekels of silver and 1 And when I have homers of barley, it's half the amount that it was typically for a slave. And that may be everything to do with the toll that sin takes on a person. This is half the price that was normally charged for a slave. It could be that Gomer has just so kind of defiled herself or just become weathered because of sin that she was only worth Half the price now. See, here's the thing that the enemy loves to promise life, vitality, blessing when you do your thing, but in the end, all he's seeking to do is rob you and destroy you. Sin will cheat you out of all those things because sin has one path and it's death. Sin brings death. Proverbs 6, verse 32 says, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. And I believe that that can begin to take on a physical manifestation of that as well. But here we see Hosea redeeming Gomer, buying her back. In the same way, God created all of us. We're rightfully his to begin with, but we walked away because of sin. We put ourselves in a very... Difficult position, but guess what Jesus did? He came and he bought us back by redeeming us on the cross. First 1 Peter 1.18.19 1, says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. See, understand something. We were made by God, but now we're also purchased by God, we're not our own. Now, what a blessing it is to know that we have a Savior, a good Master that loves us and cares for us, and how we need to commit our lives to Him and live for Him because we have been purchased with a great price. We are not our own; we are His through and through. Verse three. Let's finish up chapter three here. So I read verse three. Verse four: For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So there you see here again how they're going to be returned. They're going to come back and they're going to seek their God and David their king in the latter days. So that's kind of the main section of Hosea. It's depicting Israel's character, her condition, the consequences, but they're not without hope because of the mercy and the love of God towards them, as we've been seeing. And now as we go to chapter 4, the second section here, we're going to kind of fly through pretty quickly here. I'm going to point out a few verses, but we're going to be kind of centering around these charges that are being brought to Israel because of their sin. first charge is this spiritual apostasy. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So sadly, here's the reality. People, Israel, they had stopped living with any truth or desire to honor God and to live for God. They no longer even had a knowledge of God, it says. They just had completely forsaken him where... God wasn't on their mind. He wasn't being worshipped from their, their hearts. It just, they lacked that knowledge of God. There's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. That's a that's a very sad place to be in. To have no knowledge of God in the land means that they did what they wanted without any thought towards God any longer. And then it says in verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. So they no longer have knowledge of God, but now God says they're destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. They had no guidance or, or boundary any longer. They, they had forsaken the law of God, the word of God. They had just kind of followed their own instructions instinct rather than god's instructions see so often people think you know what i'm going to close this up i'm going to put this aside because i don't want any restrictions i want to do my own thing i want to live life to the fullest so i'm just going to put this away but you see truth doesn't restrict us from blessing and and from living life in fact as we saw on sunday it's truth that sets us free John chapter 8, verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's when we know the truth and the reality about ourselves, our conditions, about what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, that we're set free, that we get to live the life as it was meant to be lived and to enjoy it to its fullest. We can't do so if we're closing up God's word and doing our own thing. But that's what Israel was doing here. And... It says they're being destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Another charge against Israel is that they didn't trust God. They had begun to form alliances with other nations. They had begun to put their trust in other things rather than in God. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. It says there, chapter 5, verse 13, When Ephraim saw a sickness... And Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. And then, chapter 7, verse 8, read over there. Chapter 7, verse 8. Ephraim, and that's just another name for Israel, the northern kingdom, that was the largest of the tribes there. So Ephraim often becomes synonymous just with Israel as a whole, the northern kingdom. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned. Aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there on him. He does not know it. He's just kind of become withered from toiling in this sin here and the things that they've been involved in. And the pride of Israel, verse 10, testifies to his face, but they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all this. Ephraim... Also, it's like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. Wherever they go, I will spread my net on them. I will bring them down like birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. So, here's what we see going on. Israel has been mixing themselves. They've been been kind of partnering with other things. And it says there at the end of verse 8, they're a cake unturned, right? You know what it's like when you're making pancakes and you just kind of leave it on one side. It gets a little bit hard and crispy on the one side, but the top side can stay a little bit doughy, a little bit mixed. And you serve up one of those things, man, nobody's going to want it. That's gross, right? You know, oh my goodness, what are you making me here? Are you trying to poison me? This is no good. But that's kind of what God is looking at Israel. They're like a cake that's unturned, hasn't cooked all the way through, hasn't become kind of pure in a sense, They're one side here acting as though they're kind of living for me, but the other side, they're mixing themselves with other nations and all. They're like that cake that's unturned. You know, it's, it's kind of like that for a lot of Christians, where they're seeking to try to have a lot of fun in the world, partnering with the things of the world, and yet still try to remain close enough to Jesus, where, you know, they think, if I can just have... A little bit of the world, a little bit of the Lord, then I'll be okay. But here's the problem. They have too much of the world in them to be happy in Jesus. And often too much of Jesus in them to truly be happy in the world. And they're kind of like that mixed group. Where they're just unsatisfied because they're trying to play both sides. They're trying to, you know, balance on that fence. And you know what that's like when you're trying to walk that fence and you slip. It's not going to be a pretty thing, especially for you guys. But we'll leave it at that. So um, Israel found that this is really their their weakness and and this frailty of them. And then God says there in verse 7 that they're like that silly dove without sense. That's funny. A dove is known as a very gentle bird, but also a very dumb bird that sometimes... You watch and you go, they just are not making any sense to me here. I don't know why they do what they do. And that's kind of how Israel is being pictured here. And God says, "You you might fly away to other nations seeking help. Which doesn't make sense to me, but I'm going to ultimately just bring you down. You're not going to prosper in that. All along, God says, I will be your help. I'll be your strength. But they'd rejected him and not allowed him to do that. And play that role for them. Which would have been obviously so much more profitable. Look over to chapter 6. We're going to go back to chapter chapter 6. And here we see um, an interesting passage here. Verse 1. Chapter 6. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day... He will raise us up that we may live in his sight. <clears throat> here we see again just that gracious invitation of the Lord. Come and let us return to the Lord. For is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. There's that invitation of the Lord to come and receive that, that help and healing from him. And there's a very interesting picture forming here in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. That's, a, that's familiar language for us, isn't it? That we may live in his sight. We see, obviously, the importance of the third day. In scripture, the third day often speaks of resurrection, of new life. The fulfillment of this is, of course, Jesus on the cross, buried, rose again on the third day. He was torn. He was stricken as he bore the punishment for our sin, which, which brought life for us all now. And interestingly, Peter said in in, in 2 Peter 3 verse 8, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, if we might kind of spiritualize this a bit, maybe take some liberties with a verse like this and look at that a bit here. As Israel continued to reject Jesus after what Jesus had done for them on the cross, Buried rose again. He bore the affliction that they might be healed and brought to newness of life. Yet Israel, by and large, rejected Jesus after his ministry, after his work. They were eventually then driven from their land, sent into exile once again. A time where they underwent immense struggle, even to this day. Though though many back in their land today, having the land, it's not an easy existence for them. For 2,000 years... For 2,000 years, Israel has been living, by and large, in great difficulty where they have been feeling that that tearing, in a sense, as those verses are showing and and sharing here. And as we see things heating up in our world, the animosity towards Israel and their existence just continues to become more and more blatant and, and outright. It appears that something major must be coming. Could it be here now that after two days or... Two thousand years that we 've seen in our history that we 're entering into something great, could it be that as we are now in that third millennium that we 're on the brink of the Lord coming back reemerging at his second coming when he 'll usher in that millennial reign of Christ, we know that Israel will only be revived and raised up when Jesus comes to reign during the millennium I, I believe we 're so close and and this could just be a foreshadowing of that. After two days, He'll revive us. Where we're walking into that third day, that, that third millennium right now, He will raise us up that we may live in His sight. Where we will reign and rule with Jesus during that millennial reign here on earth, where we will see Him face to face. What a day that is going to be! It's only in that time that Israel is going to experience the peace that they have longed for, and it's the peace that they're going to enjoy for a thousand years and then be ushered into, uh, into eternity. So another charge against Israel, we've seen two charges so far, spiritual apostasy and um, an unwillingness to trust the Lord, to depend on the Lord. This third charge is that of idolatry. Chapter 4 now, verse 17, simply says, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. So now here, because of these things, spiritual apostasy, um, their trust in foreign alliances and their idolatry, we're going to see the judgments that are going to be coming their way now in chapters eight to 10, this next section that we look at. Chapter eight, verse one. Jump over there. We're jumping around a little bit here. Chapter eight, verse one. Set the trumpet to your mouth. He shall come like an eagle against the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. Judgment was pictured here like an eagle now coming in swiftly, speedily. That would be the Assyrian army. Why? Well, God reminds them they've broken the covenant. They've rebelled against God's law. This is that which they deserved because they've walked away from what God has given them. See, obedience to God's word is always what's going to ensure blessing. doesn't mean we're always going to have a smooth journey, but we know that when we're walking in obedience to, the, to God's word, we can rest easy. We can, we can be confident that we're in the Lord, we're with the Lord, and the Lord will see us through. Obedience to God's word ensures blessing. What a tragedy how we see today that God's word is being undermined, compromised, oftentimes just put aside as though it's not authoritative, and people are dismissing it. Even within the church, it's a sad thing. Go to chapter nine, verse seven. Chapter nine, verse seven. Again, just continue to look at this judgment that's unfolding here. The days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come. Israel knows. The prophet is a fool, the spiritual man is insane, because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. And then verse 17. Of chapter 9, verse 17 says, My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. That's what God had been wanting them to do all along. Break up that fallow ground. Stop hardening your heart towards the things of God. How we need to take that to heart ourselves. How we need to look at and say, God, is there areas in my life and my heart that have become hard where your word is not able to be planted firmly and, and begin to grow and, and sprout fruit? Is there areas that I need to begin to cultivate that hard or fallow ground? It says in verse 13 You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you trusted in your own way in the multitude of your mighty men. Therefore, tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered, as Shaman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel. Because of your great wickedness at dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. So, judgment is coming, and God shows it's not going to be pretty, guys. This is going to be harsh, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Remember, God has a love for them. He's desiring for them to come back. And he's given them opportunity to repent. But these are going to be the consequences for an unrepentant heart. Now, the last four chapters are are really the best of all. Because from chapters 11 to 14, we deal with the mercy, the love, and the faithfulness of God. Here we see that last section now. That restoration of Israel prophesied here. Chapter 11, verse 1. Let's read that. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the bales and turned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk taking them by their arms but they did not know that I healed them I drew them with gentle cords with bands of love and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck I stooped and fed them God looks back on Israel when they were just kind of in that infant stage like a loving father who's watching with excitement the first steps of his child so too God was guiding and providing for Israel he was upholding them as they grew but then think about the, the heartache of God right now as he sees these people that have forsaken all of that. Think about you parents, the, the children that you've raised up and all the work that you went through. You know, all the sacrifice you put in, all the, the messes you had to clean up. Just changing diapers is enough right there, right? I mean, think about all that. And, and to think now, all the stuff that he put in out of just love to do that for your children. And then to, to think about having them just like disown you down the road to say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm doing better on my own. I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm just, Think about if they were to do that. I mean, my boys ever tried that, I would take them out back and have it out with them, right? They wouldn't get away with it. But I'm thankful they... Don't ever try that, guys. Don't ever let that... <clears throat> but no, I mean, it would be heartache. And that's kind of... Think about... All that. And God is just looking back on, and He's just communicating the love He has for them. And the love He's shown them when they were just at that infant stage and how He cared for them, how He desires to continue to, to care for them. And the problem was that they rejected God, they turned their back on that. And so God continues to show us here in chapter 11, verse 10 now they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. That's amazing right there. See, this looks ahead now to that future day when God will call them out of their dwelling, which has been by and large scattered around the globe, outside of their land for the most part. God says, I'm going to roar like lion, and, and they're going to come back. They're going to come back, and I'm going to allow them to live in their houses again. I'm going to allow them to be back in their land. God's going to provide that for them. God's going to restore them here in those things and return them to their land. Chapter 14, verse 1, says this, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Here's again that, that loving heart of God, calling out to them to return. When, when people have wronged us, we're usually quick to kind of, you know, yell at them and tell them what we think. Tell them go their own way. Leave us alone. I don't want anything to do with you any longer, Right? When we've been wronged, when we've been hurt, that's kind of our immediate go-to. But here's God. He's gentle and he's kind. He sees how his people are hurting and reeling from their indulgence of, of sin. They've stumbled along the way. They're like the, the drunkard who can't walk or stand up properly without tumbling over. And God is inviting them to come back to him. Return to the Lord. You stumble because of your sin. Come back. And he says there in verse 2, take words with you. Kind of an interesting Thing, but that simply means that they need to come in in repentance and confession of their sin that they need to own up to what they've done they need to own up to that they need to acknowledge what they've done and now reveal their hope and their trust in the Lord to turn to the Lord and say yeah God we have wronged you we've gone away from you and your word and we repent of that and we need to come back we want to receive what you have for us and praise the Lord you know we have a great blessing and a promise, First 1 John 1.19, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, sin so oftentimes today causes people to run from the Lord. But when we've sinned, we need to get into our minds. The, the, the action I need to take right now is to run to the Lord and to take words with us. As Hosea 14.2 says, take words with you, words of, uh, of repentance and confession. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our, all our unrighteousness. That's the loving God that we have. And we so oftentimes allow sin to keep us from coming to the Lord when, when we've stumbled and fallen, we need to run to the Lord in that confession and repentance and allow the Lord to restore us. And strengthen us. And hopefully those times become less and less that we're just experiencing more time and just abiding in the Lord where we've never left the Lord and we have to come back to Him. We're just abiding in Him and staying with Him. Chapter 14, verse 3 Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the works of our hands, you are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. There's those charges that were brought to them, they were turned to the... Other nations and alliances, they were making idols and other gods. They were walking in spiritual apostasy. But now they're saying, we're not going to do those things any longer. You know, we can put so much trust in the things of this world, yet they're all things that are fading away. The Israelites were looking all around them for safety and strength when all along the Lord wanted to be that for them. And it was only the Lord that could be that for them. It's like if I was needing protection from somebody and I had two choices, Dwayne the Rock Johnson or Pee Wee Herman. And I chose Pee Wee Herman. You'd be looking at me going, why in the world would you pick a guy like that to be that strength or protection for you? You've made a bad choice, right? And it's that way with the Lord where so many times people are running and it may not be just for protection. Maybe it's what you're running to or turning to for sources of comfort. Or to try to find pleasure or joy in, apart from the Lord. And anything that's apart from the Lord is the wrong choice. And it can seem so obvious to us in certain things, but in other things we get blinded and we think, that might be something that's going to work for me. But now Israel's finally realizing, these things aren't going to save us. These things aren't going to be our God's. We're not going to find what we need in these things. For in you, the fatherless finds mercy. It's all wrapped up in you, God. That's where I'm going to turn. Scripture has much to say about those. Some, Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 118, verse 9, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Psalm 146, verse Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the son of man, in whom there is no help. Because in you, the fatherless finds mercy. And here's the great thing. This correlates with Hosea's second child. Remember, lo ruhama, no mercy. But now the Lord brings a great reversal to this story. Those that have been down and out are now gonna find mercy. You just take that that lo off of the word. Lo ruhama. you remove lo, it's now ruhamah, mercy. It's like that. When we take the Lord out of the equation, we can get very low. We can feel pretty pretty low or pretty down, like we're missing it. And you want to remove that low? Bring the Lord into the equation. Turn to Him, look to Him. Because in Him you'll find the strength, the mercy, the love that you won't find anywhere else. Well, let's finish just chapter 14 here, and then we'll close. Where do we leave off? Verse 3? Okay, let's pick it up in verse 4. Because again, this is just detailing this great restoration and reconciliation of God here. It says, "'I will heal their backsliding. "'I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. "'I will be like the dew to Israel. "'He shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. "'His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree, "'and his fragrance like Lebanon.'" Those who dwell under a shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Verse 8. Ephraim shall say, what have I to do anymore with idols? I have heard and observed him. I'm like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them but transgressors stumble in them. So that's a great end to a book that's having to deal with some pretty heavy stuff and difficult things, but it all brings us through to the end where we see God's faithful love. That great love of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, is a wonderful chapter to be at the end of such a book. I never expected such a prickly shrub to gather so fair a flower, so sweet a fruit, but so it is. Where sin abounded, grace does much more abound. No chapter in the Bible can be more rich in mercy than this last of Hosea, and yet no chapter in the Bible might, in the natural order of things, have been more terrible in judgment. Where we looked for the blackness of darkness, behold, a noontide of light. And we thank the Lord for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all, this opportunity to look through this book in your word and and what a great message it is to us. God, we thank you for your love towards us, your faithfulness. Lord, when we are, are faithless. Lord, thank you for your, your grace when we don't deserve it. Your mercy when we'd be lost without it. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. And I pray that Lord, we would be those that are are understanding how good we have it with you and that wouldn't, we would never turn aside, we never look for other sources to find what we can only find in you. Let us not play that part like Gomer did, being unfaithful like Israel did and turning to other things. May we be quick to just stay in you and abide in you, Jesus, knowing that, Lord, we have it as, Have it so good in you that nothing else will ever compare. So may we hold on close to you. May we walk in purity and wholesome and in faithfulness to you, Lord. Lead us now and strengthen us, we pray in your name. Amen.